This is Poured Over, a show about stories presented by the booksellers of Barnes & Noble. I'm Miwa Messer. I'm the producer and host of Poured Over. And Javier Zamora is an incredible poet. He has now written a memoir. And I'm going to tell you, Emma Straub is a fan. Sandra Cisneros is a fan. Dave Eggers is a fan. Ruman Alam is a fan. Daniel Alicorn, all fans of this memoir. It is a huge, beautiful, gorgeous book. And Javier, I'm really happy to see you, but I'm going to ask you to start by talking about the desert and the Sonoran Desert specifically. Would you do that? I will. But first, I just want to say thank you for having me. It's a huge honor. I'm a huge fan. And now to talk about the desert. As a nine-year-old, I was just thrown into this landscape that did not match my nine-year-old idea of a desert, which was Aladdin's desert, meaning the Sahara, where there was just going to be dunes, sand, no trees, and hopefully an oasis out there. Um, And then I get to Nogales, somewhere outside of Nogales, and all I see are bushes, um, cacti that I've never seen before. I was familiar with nopales, um, but not these other strange-looking things that nobody told me the names of. And a lot of my wandering in this strange landscape. You're in awe of something that could have cost you your life when you were nine. Mm -hmm. And this brings me to Salido. And this is some of the territory that you've covered in your poetry collection, Unaccompanied. And I'm going to encourage folks who pick up the memoir that if you haven't picked up Unaccompanied, you need to read that as well. Because some of the same terrain is covered. But would you introduce Salido to listeners, please? Salido is the tale told by my nine-year-old self Mm -hmm. of this trip that I had wanted to partake on since I could remember Mm -hmm. because my dad fled El Salvador in the middle of a civil war when I was about to turn two. Mm -hmm. So I don't remember my dad at all. I just remembered him through phone calls and pictures. Mm -hmm. My mom, I did remember, and she left when I was five or about to turn five years old. Mm -hmm. And so from the ages of five till nine, I was left at the care of my aunts and my grandma and my grandpa Mm -hmm. in El Salvador. And this idea of the North, of La Usa, of the Mm -hmm. United States, of something new, of where my parents were and they were thriving, um, this country of Baywatch and Full House, Mm -hmm. uh, of snow and Coca-Cola, polar bear commercials, this was where I wanted to be. And not because of these things, but because my parents were there. So it was a thing that I kept on uh, aiming for. And then I get to nine and my parents make the decision to hire the same coyote smuggler who brought my mom here. Mm -hmm. And her trip was very fast. Mm -hmm. It was less than two weeks. She was safe. She was a woman. She was 23 years old. And it was successful. And so they paid the same man to bring me and a group of seven other strangers Mm -hmm. and things go awry. What was supposed to take two weeks takes two months. Mm -hmm. And so Lito is that tale of this group um, just making their way across the border. And you're a nine-year-old who can't tie his shoes properly. Mm -hmm. And I'm 
pretty sure that's a detail I'm never going to forget because I can imagine, and anyone who's been around nine-year-olds knows that they're their own little creatures. <laughs> they're their own little people. They're not tiny kids, but they're not big kids. And getting a nine-year-old to walk anywhere can be complicated unless sometimes there's bribery involved. And here <laughs> you are passed off to strangers. I mean, your grandfather does go with you for a couple of weeks, but then he just can't go any further. Mm-hmm. And here you are, and you have to trust strangers, and your parents have to trust strangers. And it goes from buses to boats to trucks to walking across the Sonoran Desert and climbing over fences and under fences and avoiding cacti and terrible things and the middle of the night and also obviously helicopters and the border patrol and it is fraught so i gotta ask though what's it like for you as an adult going back thinking about one of the most traumatic moments in any individual's life and here you are recreating it for the consumption of other people i mean in a poetry collection and the memoir it was certainly difficult mm-hmm. and i like to say this that in the writing of unaccompanied, my mental capacity and my living circumstances, meaning privilege, didn't allow me to fill the page. Mm -hmm. And my immigration status as well. Mm -hmm. I was still, when I began to write unaccompanied, I was undocumented. Mm -hmm. And so my ability to travel and live, which I do now in the Sonoran Desert, a hundred miles from the border, which is where a border patrol can has complete access to go into your home if they want to. Mm-hmm. Um, so that I couldn't do. And I also didn't have a therapist that mm-hmm. I had therapists. It wasn't working for me as a mm-hmm. young 20 year old, mid 20 year old. And it wasn't until I turned 29 that I find this therapist who is a child immigrant from the DR herself. And all the stars aligned. In all of the stars aligning, the difference was that I had the capability of writing more, meaning Mm -hmm. writing prose. And I had a group of people, my therapist, my now wife, who is Mm -hmm. also a Reiki, Reiki practitioner. Reiki certainly helped. I was meditating. I was actively trying to heal. Yeah. And... So when you have this supportive group who I am now comfortable in breaking down and Mm -hmm. crying and shaking and re-traumatizing myself, I could write that stuff out of me because Mm -hmm. I needed to. Because for those 20 years, it was was like a backpack Mm -hmm. that I I was carrying and it was heavy and I was like toiling through my life. And the writing of this, I feel lighter, I feel yeah. happier, and I feel lucky as well that I did have all those things around me and those people around me to get this out of my chest. You're also coming of age, though, at a time where we didn't really have the language for trauma. It seems to me, though, that here you are. You can, Your grandpa sounds like he was kind of a handful, and I say that with love and respect but he sounds like he's a little bit of a handful and i'm guessing he's not hanging out teaching you as a nine-year-old how to talk about your feelings we're going to come to your parents later but it is a big shift as a young man 
in the United States, coming from a tradition too, where you're not really sort of emotionally open, let's call it. And here you are sitting down and saying, okay, now it's time. So is that how you get to poetry though? Because I know there are lots of people who sit around thinking, oh, well, poetry, you know, that's, it's poetry. But there's a discipline that goes to it. And there's an understanding of language and what you can do with it. Poetry taught me where it's like the, Mm -hmm. what do you call that? That gateway drug into (laughs) therapy. Yeah. But it, it certainly wasn't the end all. Right. And and for the longest, as I was writing poetry, I thought, I genuinely thought that that's all that it needed to do. Right. Because I was, oh, look at me. I'm writing my deepest, darkest secrets. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm sharing it to the world. So, of course, I'm healed. And no, I was just scratching the surface. Yeah. And I hadn't, I hadn't allowed myself to open this door. I was just like peeking through a door. But now... With Solito, I have really flung the door open. And I'm an only child. Um, mm-hmm. I'm a Leo rising. I'm an Aquarius. And I think just inherently, I've always questioned the status quo, beginning yeah. with my parents and yeah. my situation. I think immigrating, being an immigrant, uh, quote unquote, border crosser, mm-hmm. I've really carried throughout my life. And so I've always questioned why my grandpa treated my grandma the way he did. Patriarchy is something that I still struggle with. With in Salvadoran culture, it's like so ingrained with, and, and it's part of colonization. And these are things that you have to actively be trying to unpack and destroy and for the longest i thought that i was doing that work but i wasn't doing that work and all of those combined when i was 29 again Mm -hmm. and and i found myself in a place where i was tired of pretending and tired of this shame that i carried and tired of watching my family suffer because none of us have talked about the things that we carry and all of us have trauma of crossing. It's just the mm-hmm. beginning right. of, of the trauma that my family carries. So your parents still haven't really had that conversation with you, have they? Yes and no. Mm-hmm. Like I mentioned it that at the end of the book, when they picked me up from a Tucson apartment somewhere, right. they kept asking questions and I had just survived what I described in Solito. And that has been the first and perhaps only full conversation in which they understood what I had just experienced. And because of that conversation, it has been hard for us to sit down and talk about what happened. We have tried. And Mm -hmm. my dad, in particular, always cries when he remembers what I smelled like when he picked me up. Right. My mom, um, it's harder for her to talk about it. I think she carries, they both carry a lot of guilt mm-hmm. um, for what they put me through. Um, and it's just, the book uh, has become sort of like a conversation starter. Mm-hmm. And to put it this way, my dad finished the book and he apologized. He told me that he cried again. My mom couldn't make it past the first chapter. 
and we haven't talked about it since. Yeah, um, yeah. I can see that. Should we talk about how you move from sort of poetry and scratching that initial itch, right, to writing? How long is Selena? It's a very quick read, all things considered, but it's not little. 384 pages. 385 if you count your author bio, the very last page. <laughs> I'm assuming you don't write in a linear fashion when you're catching memories and reconstructing sounds and smells and there's a lot of visceral imagery here i mean obviously you're a poet you know how to do this but how do you construct a narrative like this and capture the truth of the thing in a lot of ways i have been trying to write this story since i started writing when i was 17 years old okay i have been trying to get this out of me and i couldn't my Living circumstances, mm -hmm. my lack of privilege, lack of papers, et cetera, didn't allow me to. So what I produced was poetry. Since I was 18 years old, I've found attempts at prose, mm -hmm. attempts at capturing what eventually became Solito. And some of those I trimmed all the way down and it became June 10th, 1999, which is the poem that, that closes off unaccompanied. Right. Images, I also attempted from the age of 17 till 29. And once I was, of all places, Harvard, because mm -hmm. I got a Radcliffe Fellowship mm -hmm. to write my second book of poems, I abandoned that project because the project was supposed to look at all the headlines of refugee children, Central American children in the mm -hmm. New York Times and mm -hmm. write like erasure poems. And that project got me so mad that other people were writing this story. And here I was in the most privileged institution in the country and perhaps the world. Mm -hmm. Why don't I use that privilege now and finally start this thing? And which became Tolito. But mm -hmm. from the get go, the scene in the chapter that really clicked everything for me was the boat scene. Yeah. And I reread Ed Edward uh, Danticott's Crick Crack and the, that first story, yep. uh, Children of the Sea, re-traumatized me mm -hmm. in a good way. Mm -hmm. And I just wrote most of that scene. And that became the anchor. I was like, okay, I have this. It's in the present tense. I had prior attempts of like look at me now mm -hmm. i'm at harvard i am 29 and this is i'm retelling you that story that right. happened to me in the past kind of like a traditional memoir yeah and then i wrote that in the in the present tense and right. i found my voice i am nine years old i am gonna tell it as a nine-year-old kid and then i i took all these other molds and clippings that i had been working on for 10 years i was looking re-looking at my poems uh, getting lines or remembering things. And then I made a linear timeline, which to me, uh, I knew when to begin it and I knew right. when to end it. And that was easy for me to, to fill everything in. Yeah, I'm so happy to hear that about the boat scene because in my notes, I'm just looking at this line that I grabbed, rrr, splash, rrr, splash, rrr, splash. <laughs> and I'm like, you know, right there. And then there's another moment where you're talking about how the moon paints the waves platinum. That whole setup as terrifying as it is, really works. It really, really works. I can see how that Thank unlocked you. 
a lot for you, but also you're nine. And this is a lot of book for a nine-year-old. And also you have lost touch with the people that you crossed with. I mean, it's the nature of the thing. You tried to stay in touch. Mm -hmm. They tried to stay in touch. Phone numbers get changed. Everyone's traumatized. Uh, The people that you were closest to as you cross have gone to Virginia. I hope they're okay. Um, but But we don't know. We don't know. And so how do you sit with yourself? I mean, Reiki obviously is part of this and therapy is part of this, but how do you sit in your own skin? There's a lot in this book. You don't. Mm-hmm. Um, I got here in 1999, mm-hmm. right after uh, California went through a pretty racist uh, moment mm-hmm. um, that they wanted to not help uh, immigrants at all. And But then luckily by 99, ESL programs were quote unquote legal. And I was thrown into this ESL program with, I was not the only child there. There were mm-hmm. five of us in Marin County, which is where I go to. <laughs> I, I do this thing, go to Marin County mm-hmm. into the, the I want to say 98% brown spot yeah. of San Rafael, California, which is the right. canal. And we're all immigrants. We're still all immigrants there. Um, most of us, uh, undocumented and so I'm there in a school that's predominantly brown mm-hmm. and with like two white kids in the whole school so to me like well where are all the white people of mm-hmm. Baywatch from the get-go my parents like don't tell anyone what happened don't tell people that you were not born in this country learn English fast and I think I really it, that was really sunk into my head mm-hmm. and and because you have to in order to survive right and as a nine-year-old I learned to lie and I was a really good liar and the things that I learned from my trauma are and now with therapy I can I can say this are transference right. mm-hmm. I mm-hmm. knew how to create mother figures and knew who to attach to a stranger mm-hmm. in order for them to help me survive Right. So that's really good. I also learned how to black things out. Uh, distance. So mm-hmm. I'm really good at just like, no, that happened to me. I'm going to store it away. I'm going to lose the key. And now we're doing this thing. Right. And so from ages nine till teenagehood, right. I was, I was okay. I was living this assimilated life at one point pretending that I didn't speak Spanish. And then the hormones kicked in and I was just angry. I was just angry at everybody. Mm -hmm. I was that academically good student and, but behaviorally terrible student to have. I would twice, I threw water bottles at my teacher Mm -hmm. and I got kicked out and I was so mischievous that nobody I didn't take the detention to the principal, so I didn't get suspended. I like knew how to connive and talk my way out of things, even mm-hmm. from that age. Mm-hmm. So that has been me, and it kept on getting worse and worse and worse. Um, so that's how you live with that. And the only person that you can control harming is yourself. And so that has been the book that I've carried. And poetry began to distill away and wash that trauma 
away slowly. And that angry, traumatized kid had a fellowship, had a Stegner fellowship mm -hmm. at Stanford, was a Radcliffe fellow at Harvard. Let's see, you also have an NEA grant. But how does that kid go from being the angry kid who's throwing water bottles at his teachers and figuring out how not to get suspended to a lauded writer? For better or for worse, my mother's upbringing mm -hmm. really, really cemented um, with a stick with belts uh, that idea of school is going to be the way out. Yeah. And I'm from a very small town, and there was one private school, which happened to be the Catholic school that had mm -hmm. just opened two years before I had I started school. And it was the only one that required payment. And my parents, and I'm still proud to this day to say that that has been the only time that I have paid for school. When I was in second grade, and this is in the book, I won my way to a grammar competition mm -hmm. and at the national level. So I met the president and shook his hand. And mm -hmm. I was the only representative of second grade, all second graders in El, in El Salvador for my department, which is like my state. And so yes. since then, that you don't forget. Yep. And, and none of my family members I've ever forgotten. And they always remind me, oh, you're smart. School is going to be the, the thing. So they didn't know about my behavioral pro uh, problems, but they were like, oh, you're getting good grades. Cool. Yeah, keep, keep that up. Keep that up. And it was it was a mixture of that and my anger, mm -hmm. which made me also a good soccer player. Right. And it was soccer that gave me a huge break. And by high school, I got a full ride scholarship to one of the most expensive schools in the United States, which is the Branson School in Marin County. Mm -hmm. And I paid zero. And again, I, I tried to get kicked out of Branson. They didn't let me. <laughs> and because I, I was the only one of, like five brown kids in the entire school mm -hmm. Been um, there. Yeah, and they're all rich like mm -hmm. their first cars are we're talking bright yellow porsches like yep. a senior had a bright yellow porsche as his first mm -hmm. car i think that's how you get to all mm -hmm. these fellowships um and it's something that has also been harming at, at the same time and after having the privilege of having been in those institutions it's also a drain and again, finding myself being the one brown person or like the first to get this or like blah, blah, blah. It's, it, it's also taxing. Partially, I asked too about school because at some point you discover words are the thing that you love. And I'm wondering who some of the writers who made you Javier Zamora the poet and now memoirist, prose stylist, whatever, whatever's going to come next. And, you know, we'll get there too. But who are some of the writers who've contributed to who you are and where you're going? As a way to learn English, when I was in fifth grade, mm -hmm. my dad, my dad loves uh, Marquez. Um, hey. And he had this old copy of Chronicles of a Death Foretold mm -hmm. in English and in Spanish. Mm -hmm. um and it was like the like still it's like the white with green trim cover it's like a very small thin book and he's like here learn words 
I like the act of figuring out what these long words that I'd never heard of in both English or Spanish meant. Mm-hmm. And I still didn't like to read. I, I never liked English. I was I wanted to be a historian. Um, first, I was, math came easy to me. I was very mm-hmm. good at math and history as well. But English, never. I always resisted it. Mm-hmm. And so then I finally read 100 years. And it was like my life. You know, there are passages in there in which a grandkid meets their great great grandma. I have I have been in a what's that five generation home. I oh, wow. met okay. my great great grandma. I would take her coffee. I can still, with a hundred percent fact, tell you that I saw her spirit go out of her body and walk back through our cornfields when she mm-hmm. died. And then I was 17 and I learned, I, I did a Google search because then somebody taught Neruda and I was mm-hmm. like, hey, he's cool. Um, but then I Google searched, are there Salvadoran poets? So I right. Google searched Salvadoran poet, Roca Dalton came up. And Roca Dalton is, for lack of a better word, a G. And he started a revolution. He was incarcerated, escaped twice. And this is how small the country, my country is as well. Mm-hmm. And it's funny because Roca Dalton has played a huge part in my poetry. I use a lot of his uh, poems and I have his poems tattooed on my body. Mm-hmm. And I consider myself very left-leaning. Mm-hmm. My grandpa is not left-leaning at all. Yep. And my grandpa was in the military and my grandpa met Roca Dalton the the first time that he got incarcerated. Okay. And so the two sides, and now it's funny. I find it very hilarious that now his grandkid has this guy who was incarcerated tattooed on his body. And and so from then on, there have been a lot of others, but those are like the people. And like I mentioned earlier, Edwidge Danticott's work has been a godsend, mm-hmm. um, Reina Grande's work, um, another immigrant who came here and did a similar trek as mine when she was nine or 10, I can't remember, but she was a kid. And so this story that I'm telling has happened, is happening and will continue right. to happen. Your grandfather, I was thinking about him earlier as we were starting taping because of his military background and the fact that your parent, your dad left first because of the Salvadoran Civil War, which was funded by the U.S. Like, let's not pretend for a second. That Thank you for <laughs> we, saying that. <laughs> we, we had a deeply unpleasant hand in it. And Salvador, actually, I, uh, the Didion essays, yeah. Salvador, really, um, you may have noticed I read them when I was young. <laughs> <laughs> I carry them around with me. <laughs> but... You know, when we look at the people who are coming to the States as migrants and who are taking a path that is really traumatic and really difficult and really dangerous, and certainly this is not something that parents think of lightly, like, hey, I'm going to hand my kid over to a stranger and hope I see them on the other side. I mean, that's, we have to look at America's legacy in Central and South America. I mean, around the world too, but let's, let's focus for a second on Central and South America, it's extraordinary to me how little compassion we seem to have 
And, you know, you see it in Europe, too, with refugees from North and Central Africa as well. It's just this idea of the other, right? That somehow a nine-year-old can be the boogeyman. Mm-hmm. I don't know how we get past that, but I think part of it is admitting to what we've done. <laughs> and then yeah. we, as Americans, we don't really seem ready to have that conversation, which I find deeply frustrating, as you can tell. Yeah. But how do we push past? How do we, how do we get people to see that we're talking about extreme, extraordinary circumstances and not just, oh, it's Tuesday. I think I'll go run across a board or something. What this reminds me of is the reasons why I wanted to do history. Like yeah. I got my history degree from UC Berkeley. Mm-hmm. What I learned, and there are two facts just mm-hmm. to what you were saying. By 1983, the left, which was looking at co-ops, was uh, using a woman. So there was like this glimmer of hope for gender equality in El Salvador. Uh, there was this hope of societal equality at all levels was winning. Mm-hmm. And they were about to win. And then the U.S. sends millions and millions of dollars at one point surpassing the aid mm-hmm. for Israel on a mm-hmm. daily on a daily basis, more than a million dollars per day. Mm-hmm. And that really shifted to what we have now, which is one of the worst countries, my country, for in which where it's unsafe for you to be a woman. It is unsafe for you to be part of the LGBTQI um, community. There's a huge amount of hate that, yeah. and my question is like, what would have happened? Mm-hmm. I wouldn't be here and I'll gladly not be here. My family would gladly not be here. So there's one. The other was that because of Reagan politics, and this statistic really bothers me, out of all refugee applications during the uh, Salvadoran Civil War, out of all those immigrants that came and asked for refugee status in the United States, less than 2% got that refugee status. Mm-hmm. And that was because the Reagan administration didn't want uh, Americans in the world to be like, oh, these people are fleeing a democracy that is funded by the United States. They're not refugees, right? Um, And so that complicated the lives of the Salvadorans in this country, Mm -hmm. which helped. It wasn't the only way, but it helped push adolescents, teenagers who were angry for having done the crossing and witnessing terror push them into gangs and then Mm -hmm. that has been this thing that we're still living with today you didn't know how to tie your shoes properly you didn't know how to keep yourself clean really i mean you knew sort of how to shower and whatnot but like no nine-year-old knows how to do laundry (laughs) please i (laughs) i have a younger brother i (laughs) i love him to bits he can now do his own laundry. But, you know, it's it's all of this. It's all of this. It's this mythology that we've created around the other. And I say this to you as someone who's also a brown American, <laughs> who happened also, you know, I was born here. I, you know, and, but I had a passport at the age of 10 months because my mother wasn't yet a U.S. citizen and signed by my dad. And there's this sort of old family story where we were coming back from Japan and 
my mother had to send me through the U.S. customs line and she had to go through the foreigners customs line. I couldn't even see over the counter. I was five and I couldn't reach um, to hand over my passport. And I mean, I make light of it, but, you know, I'm also thinking of my mom because I saw her face. Mm-hmm. I saw her face when she had to just shoot me. And I'm simply talking about a customs line at JFK. I'm not even talking about buses and boats and trucks mm-hmm. and crossing a desert. And I saw the terror on her face when she was like, I have to send my child and her Mary Janes. and Because back in the day, you know, you dressed up to fly. And it's stuff like that where I'm just kind of like, hey, wait a minute. We all have some version of this story. Mm-hmm. And yeah, you just kind of want your parents. <laughs> yeah. And in a way, you created mom and dad from Patty and Chino, two of the adults mm-hmm. that you're traveling with. And Patty's daughter, Carla, is with you. And here you are making this tiny unit all so you can see mom and dad. That's a lot. You're yeah. nine. You're yeah. nine and you don't know how to properly tie your shoes. And I have to say, too, at one point you're talking about in the book taking off your Velcro shoes and putting on shoes with laces. And I was like, oh, I hope you don't get blisters. I'm really hoping you don't get blisters, <laughs> tiny man, because that doesn't seem yeah. like a great idea. Yeah. It's all of these things. And at one point, Patty falls into a cactus because yeah. you're running and you've got to take time to pull out all the cactus burrs. Well, there's not a moment of rest when this is happening. Mm-hmm. You're hypervigilant. You do run out of water at one point. I mean, all of it. Mm-hmm. Do you yeah. feel like... Do you feel like you have rest now? Do you feel, I mean, it's, exa- you make it clear in the book that it's exhausting. And have you been able to rest since then? Do you feel, do you feel like you have passed that level of exhaustion? I think the writing of this mm-hmm. was, and I've asked other writers and it's un- unbelievable. Like my best writing day, I just yeah. sat down for like 10 hours and wrote 5,000 words, which only happened once. Okay. And I, 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 that is annoying still to me now because I can't do that. <laughs> and I haven't been able to do that every create that. Mm. But I think this idea of work mm-hmm. and just being hunched over that us immigrants, I think at least I can't speak for everybody, but for myself, mm-hmm. I have in a way destroyed my body because I hate it, um, because it carries the trauma. But also, I'm trying to honor and go back to those moments. And the only way to do that is to overwork. And And that is not healthy. And I think I'm learning that. And now having the privilege and the ability to just right and to just rest I think has been the biggest gift that this book has given me and so finally I feel like I can and I'm allowing myself that but Mm -hmm. that has also taken a lot has taken a lot of work because there's still this little voice Mm -hmm. oh you're you're lazy you're not doing stuff you're not doing enough look at what everybody else is doing blah 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 this little voice that is always there 
um, now can finally rest a little bit. Never going to go away. Right. Like my trauma is never going to go away. Right. That little nine-year-old kid still follows me and is with me and is very much a part of me. But now I can understand it. Yeah. And and this is the hope for the book, not only for non-immigrants, but for immigrants to really start to have that com- that internal conversation about what we have been through. Mm-hmm. And I think this book is mostly for them. The book was for me. And then putting it out in the world is for everybody. Um, but I hope that non-immigrants can see that we don't want to do this and that it's difficult and that we carry this with us every single day. And for immigrants to see that perhaps facing it and talking about it can lead, hopefully, to healing and to just living a life where you are allowed to rest and that that is okay. Hey, so what's next for you? You've written your collection. You've written a memoir. I mean, yes, you're touring for the book. There will be lots of conversations in lots of different places, but what's next for you as a writer? Um, trying to figure that out. I, <laughs> <laughs> I have rested perhaps a little bit too much, uh, but I am. I think I found a voice. And one of your episodes, uh, I forget which writer, but I was listening to that episode. I was like, I am like that, that I can't seem to move forward in a project of prose mm-hmm. until I find a voice. And again, I think it's it's a memoir and it's going to be this angry adolescent, um, visibly citizen, internally undocumented and traumatized kid at this fancy institution, which... Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I guess I already mentioned them, but I might change the name of the Branson School <laughs> in this part two of Solito. I really want to read that book. I really, really want to read the book. I think it's a chance for you to talk about masculinity and mm-hmm. mental health and all of these things that we're still, as a culture, finding words for. And yeah. sometimes, you know, some days we're better at it than others. And some days I just look at us and go, really? Yeah. Really? <laughs> and yeah. I say this as someone who grew up in Boston. I mean, you know, gin was invented for us, so we didn't have to talk about it. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Yep. That's really, okay. I mean, straight up. <laughs> we just don't want to talk about anything. I am aware yeah. that along these conversations regarding Solito, people are going to look at the back of the book and read my bio and be like, oh, you are, you got to this country and you are this for lack of a better word, you know, the quintessential like example of a good immigrant. We are not all good and we're not all bad. We need to stop thinking in, in, in those terms. And it's more complicated and it's the more complicated that actually hopefully will change uh, American stands around immigration in this country. And as someone who has always rejected the model minority label that people have attempted to put on me, I support that plan. (laughs) Oh, do I support that plan, my friend? I just just want to walk through the world like a human being. That's really all I want. And and the things that people project onto me because of my face or how I sound or anything, uh, you know, that's, that's, 
I cannot wait for the next book. I really, I'm so excited. Javier Zamora, thank you so much for joining us on Poured Over. Salido is out now, as is Unaccompanied. So go get the poetry too. Thank you, it's been such a pleasure. I'm a huge fan. (laughs) Hello readers, it's time for another TBR Top Off, where we recommend books to pick up when you stop in for your copy of Salito. I'm Mark. And I'm Becky. And we're coming to you from our Barnes & Noble store in Cincinnati, Ohio. Uh, We've got a couple books to cover. Becky, if you don't mind, I'll jump right in. Go ahead. Thank you very much. So I chose a book called The Long Walk, The True Story of a Trek to Freedom. Uh, This is by Slavomir Rolvich, and it is his account of an escape from a Soviet labor labor camp in 1941. He and six fellow prisoners uh, escaped this labor camp, which is a terrible, terrible place to be. Perhaps their journey is almost as terrible. They end up trekking out of Siberia, through China, across the Gobi Desert, through Tibet, over the Himalayas, ultimately ending up in Nepal. Dear God, um, they have nothing but an axe, a knife, and very little food, and as much hope as they can muster. This journey is thousands of miles. It took months for them to get to a place where they really, truly felt safe. It is not a breezy adventure. Um, Harrowing is an understatement. The weight of Soviet oppression, the desperation of escape, and just that clinging and clawing for hope during an excruciating journey all adds up to one of the most incredible stories I think that I've ever read. Um, I highly recommend this. Um, It is a testament to human endurance. So please, please check out The Long Walk. Becky, do you have one for us? I do. It is actually very similar to yours. Mm. Um, So the book that I thought of uh, to go along with Salito is Enrique's Journey by Sonia Nazario. Uh, This was actually um, originally a series of Los Angeles Times articles that ended up winning the Pulitzer Prize. And it's the story of many Central American families, but our story, basically our spotlight, is on Enrique, who, uh, when he was five years old, his mother left for the United States to better provide for him. Uh, She was able to get a job and send money back so that he could be fed and go to school and just have a much better life than she was able to provide by staying uh, with him. So they are in contact with phone calls. And as often as she promises, this is just a short stint. She'll be home soon. Um, The months turn into years. And finally, after more than a decade apart, Enrique's had enough. He wants his mother. (laughs) And so he decides he's going to go find her. And um, he goes with very little. Uh, Basically, he has a a scrap of paper that has her phone number in North Carolina. And otherwise, then he just he sets out and his journey takes him the length of Mexico, uh, mostly traveling on the freight trains that run that whole um, path. That is not really the safest way to go. I'm not sure what the safest way would be, but for him, uh, those trains and those tracks are very dangerous. Um, They are highly traveled by a lot of migrants. And so um, there are a lot of people there that are um, armed and willing to take advantage of them. So there are the gangsters that run the tops, the roofs of the trains. Um, There are the bandits who are kind of along the tracks, ready to rob and kill migrants. And then there are the cops who, you know, are just looking to fleece and deport them. Unfortunately, it's a journey that a lot of children are making 
And so, um, but Enrique is able to make that journey, um, you know, armed with wit and courage and hope and a lot of kindness from strangers. And he is eventually reunited with his mother. This is the journey that thousands and thousands of children have made yearly uh, to be reunited with their parents uh, because their parents aren't able to provide a a suitable um, upbringing for them in their own country. It's heartwarming, but heartbreaking also, um, but definitely just a book you really should read. Um, it is Enrique's Journey by Sonia Nazario. Oh, fantastic choice. Thank you, you as well. Yes, some sobering titles, but ultimately very important and empowering. Um, thank you everybody for tuning in to Poured Over. Please make sure to support us with a rating and subscribe so you never miss an episode. You can also follow our adventures at Barnes & Noble. (laughs) I'm Mark. I'm Becky. And you can follow our home store at BN Westchester. Thanks again for tuning in. Happy reading, everybody. Bye. Board Over is a Barnes & Noble production. The show is available on Apple, Spotify, and Stitcher. Please rate and review us wherever you listen to podcasts.